Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. So I mentioned that you've got the NBA and NHL postseasons underway. So the one thing I did not think that I would be talking about today, much less leading the program with, is the MLB umpires. More specifically, umpires and their hand check technique. Like, how the hell is that leading a show on a Thursday during the NBA playoffs, during the NHL playoffs? How? I don't know, but it is. Incredibly, we are. Because here, the bleep we are, because this happened yesterday. As we were going off the air and showing you the replay of the birdie home run, Madison Bumgarner got tossed. And he had to be restrained by, what, three or four yeah. Diamondbacks oh, personnel. Yeah. That was not the home plate umpire that tossed him out. That's the first base umpire, right, Dan Bellino? You know, obviously, when they were checking his hands, he must have exchanged a couple words there. So this was essentially an ejection when he his hand was checked. Bellino was just waiting for him to say something the whole time. I mean, just check his hands and walk away. It's over. Here you see Bellino not even looking down at his hands. You know, most umpires come out, they check your hands. You see him right there, he's just waiting. He keeps waiting, looking for Bumgarner to look up. And then when they make that eye contact. And, Bu- and Bumgarner is not making eye contact. No. He's still. And, that- it, and when Bumgarner says, you're still on my hand and you're staring at me, so now I got to say something. Bowie Sports. I mean, pretty much, that's mad bum getting tossed after the first inning of a game against the Marlins. Sufficient to say, mad bum was mad as hell. And when you first see it, it's like, what got under this dude's skin? Why did he get a sudden case of the reddest ass? Even for a first ballot Hall of Fame, red ass. And I mean that in the best way possible. But even for this guy, how does your ass get that red that fast? How does your ass get that red that early in a game? And the answer is... Dan Bellino. Dan Bellino? Who's Dan Bellino? Exactly. DB was the first base ump in yesterday's D-backs game. And DB went DB. The ultimate DB. I mean, it sure as hell seems like Bellino took issue with the fact that Mad Bum complained about the home plate umpire strike zone. So he went to start something with Mad Bum during the hand check. And by start something, I mean he took his sweet-ass time during that hand check after the first inning. If you've ever seen an ump do a between-innings hand check, you know how far over the line DB was in that case. That was not a hand check. That was effectively a hand massage. Normally, you're paying 50 bucks and a tip for what Bum got there. And he never even did really look at Mad Bum's digits. He was just staring at Mad Bum the entire time, staring him down, baiting him, goading him, waiting for the guy to look up, daring him to say something. And the moment Mad Bum did, Bellino ejected him. Now, normally I would say you cannot get hooked like that if you're the pitcher. But I totally get why he did. DB was going to keep going DB on that hand for as long as it took to get a reaction from MB. And he was there for one reason and one reason only, and it was not to check hands. He practically wanted to throw hands. Of course, Mad Bum said something. Who wouldn't say something after standing there for like an hour? While the guy's just there manipulating your digits while staring you down, waiting for you to say something so he can run you. A totally Bush move by DB. Again, a DB move by DB. Turns out MB didn't have the reddest ass out there. It was DB who did. Because it sure seems like he was bent about Mad Bum complaining about some calls by his guy, the home plate umpire. So DB took matters into his own hands. Hey-oh. Is there a thinner skin or a redder ass than a first base ump baiting and goading a great pitcher into a confrontation 
after the first inning so he can eject him. DB was pissed about MB, but he knew he couldn't eject him for complaining about balls and strikes, so he went and he created something so he could eject him. Because, of course, that's what DB would do. So, exactly what was the umpire's explanation for the ejection? Bellino said, quote, Well, there really wasn't a conversation there. As the commissioner's report will note, he just made some inappropriate comments and was removed from the game. End of quote. Yeah, no, DB. Whatever comments he made were the result of you being inappropriate with his hand and you wanting to fight him for whatever reason. Or wanting him to fight you, I should say. It's Bush League. Go back to the New York Penn League with that act. And do your job. And your job yesterday was to call guys safe or out at first base. Very easy money. Pump your fist every so often. Do that big double arm swipe if someone's safe on a close play. And maybe, just maybe, there's a pickoff play or a balk. Other than that. Just stand out over there for three hours, get a big fat paycheck, and then stuff your face after the game. But no, that was not enough. That was not enough for DB. He had to make it about him. He obviously thought that the fans threw down their hard-earned cash to show up at the park, forget about their troubled lives so they could watch Dan Bellino do work. Dan Bellino? The less than 7,500 people who bothered to show up for a Wednesday afternoon game in Miami were all there to see Dan bleeping Bellino. Dan Bellino? Because it's all about Dan Bellino. Dan Bellino? That Wednesday afternoon game is not a getaway day. It's Dan Bellino day. Dan Bellino? Dan Dan Bellino is the real star. Dan Bellino is the man. Because in case you didn't know, it's all about the umps. You know, why do you think fans show up in their replica ump jerseys? Why do you think kids are running up on umps to get their autographs? Hey, and of course, don't even think about sleeping on umpire collectibles. A Joe West rookie card could probably pay for your kid's college education. Hey, hey, do yourself a favor. Get yourself a Laz Diaz NFT or maybe a Doug Eddings or an Angel Hernandez because it's all about these guys. Always. Time and time again, these fools make it about themselves. Guys like that are there for one reason, not to get it right, not to stay out of the way, but to make it about themselves and to run a guy or two. And as always, always, If I know the name of the ump, that's a problem. Not for the ump. Hell, that's a win for those guys. But it's a problem for the game. It's a problem for the rest of us. You know DB had to be so proud of himself after that. He was ready to go Wade Boggs horse ride victory lap after that. He was probably just pissed that Mad Bum didn't punch him. Because that would have been the real win right there. Umpires should be seen and not heard, and definitely not known. Dan Bellino should not ump another major league game for a long time. And the sooner that we can replace all these dopes with robots, the better. Man, I was always one of those guys that said the human element's part of the game, right? It's just part of the game. It makes it better. Yeah, well, not if if that's what the human element involves. That does not make it better at all. Mad Bum himself was asked about the hand check and had this to say. Have you ever had a hand check quite like that? No. I haven't seen one like that. What do you think that he was doing there? you seen the video. you seen the video. I've seen the video. I was there. It's, uh, yeah, you guys see it plain as day. Do you think it was a direct kind of reaction to your comments toward the home plate umpire? Uh, I, don't, I don't know. I don't want to speak for for Dan, but, um, yeah, like I said, you, you guys all seen it, and you can go back and see it all again, and it's pretty clear. Do you have any history with Dan? I don't, not that I know of. <laughs> I don't know. You do now, bro. I thought he handled that about as well as you could after the umpire handled it about as poorly as you could. Hey, dude, no one on the planet had seen anything like that. 
The best part about the robots, they won't have history with anybody. Like, I'm not a specialist in the field of robotics, but from what I understand and from what I can gather, they're grudge-proof. They do not have long memories. In fact, they don't have memories at all. They're robots. DB, if you want to quit your job and go be a palm reader and turn over some of those big playing cards, I mean, you go right ahead. Be my guest. Dan Bellino? Dan Marino. The future will be great, but today is just as incredible. Meet Nissan's most advanced lineup. If you can't get enough adrenaline, there's the all-new 400 HP Nissan Z. Or, for your off-road adventures, check out the all-terrain Nissan Frontier. If you're more of a spontaneous road trip type of person, then hop in the Nissan Pathfinder. And, for something more electric, there's the stylish Nissan Aria. So, let's enjoy the ride. 2023 RENZ, not yet available for purchase. Expected availability this spring for 2023 Z and this fall for 2023 ARIA. Eric Neander is my guest. Eric, it's good to have you back. How are you? Jim, good to, have, good to be on. Happy to hear from you. Thanks for having me. You too. It's great to have you back. So, Eric, obviously a long, long year, but you're coming off a sweep of the A's. When you and I spoke last year, you had a five-game winning streak that then turned into an 11-game streak after we spoke. So maybe there's a pattern here. How are you feeling right about now, and what's the vibe like around the team in the earlier part of the season? Yeah, the, the invite to come on, you nailed it. Was uh, was happy to get it for that very reason. So why not? We'll give it a shot. So things are things are good it's um you know it, it was a it was a rush to get ready uh you know with with the lockout taking away a lot of the off season it was a bit of a frantic build up through through camp and uh I, I think in in some respects still still settling in and and the club's finding its footing but a nice start to the west coast trip in oakland taking three there and off to seattle which has been a tough place for us to play but we're able to take two or three from them back at our place a few weeks ago and uh, all in all, pretty good. Talent, we feel good about. Health, not quite where we wanted on the pitching side, but that's that's part of pitching, and you got to be prepared for it and uh, have a lot of confidence in this in this team as they as they settle in and play what is a very long baseball season. I like it. Eric Neander joining us. Let's talk about some of that young talent. Manuel Margot had a big two-run single in the eighth. Hope you guys complete that three-game sweep. Afterwards, Brett Phillips called him, quote, the most underrated player in the league, end of quote. He had signed that extension with the team a few weeks back. So what do you make of that assessment of him and his game? Yeah, he's he's not underrated to us. We, we really appreciate him and just a, a quiet contributor, uh, not – you know, very, very athletic, does a lot of different things to help win baseball games that happen outside the batter's box. And the batter's box usually gets the most attention, but it, the extra bases, the defensive play, the versatility, the selflessness, um, just the way he fits our culture, those are those are huge, huge pluses and a big part of why we've won games. And uh, certainly had a great series in Oakland, had the big hit last night, had some big hits throughout that series. And nice to see him get a little attention, nice to see him perform at that level. Um, and you know, as good a person as it gets, we're lucky to have him for a few more years. And like I said, he's been a big part of us winning games last few years and uh, fully expect that to be the case moving forward. And nice to see him getting a little attention. He deserves right. it. So, Eric, you mentioned culture. I'm going to try and circle back to that in a minute. But when you and I spoke last year, we talked a little bit about Wander Franco, who was still about a month away from his MLB debut at the time. Now we're 93 regular season games into his major league career. So what do you make of what you've seen from him so far? Yeah, I, as as high as our our expectations were for him, uh, and I think as high as they were throughout the industry, it's I think he's arguably uh, exceeding them. You know, it's the the bat is special, the, the the feel for contact, the the switch hit, the the emerging power, the ability to use the field, the ability to handle fastballs all over the zone, outside the zone, stay on soft stuff. He's a he's a complete hitter. Um, he's a hitter built for kind of where the game's gone. There's a lot of mixing of speeds. There's a lot of power in the game, and he can he can cover all of it and in a way that, like I said, is I think even more impressive than than what we were anticipating, especially at 21. And and further, he he competes as well as anybody. He plays the game as hard as anybody. And defensively at shortstop, he's he's played it you know probably about as well as anybody here in the early going. And a lot of the attention's on the bat, but just a, 
a remarkably gifted, talented, and motivated all-around player. Yeah, I mean, on top of that, too, we're talking about a guy who had to go nearly 600 days while playing a game due to the pandemic. He just turned 21, so it's all those things. And then, of course, it is that makeup and the way he handles it with all the hype and the pressure, which is so amazing. Eric, you talk briefly about culture. When you talk about culture and identity and philosophy and approach, there's this saying around your organization, quote, break a window, don't burn down the house. I think that's really interesting. For those who do not know, what does that mean exactly? What does that represent? Yeah, that's a that's a long-held mantra by our owner, Stu Sternberg. And I think it's in, in sports, um, look, recent recent results carry a lot of weight. There's a lot of responsiveness to, to recent results. And I think through that, there there can be some some risk aversion. You know, it's the, sometimes the best way to keep your job is to is to play things safe. And I think, you know, in, in our situation, our culture, our revenues aren't as strong as some of the teams we're competing against. And, and that's recognized. And I think what's, what's fallen out of that as long as I've been here is, you know, the encouragement to, to try to do things better. You know, if you, if, if you're thoughtful, you know, if you're detailed in your work and, and, and your considerations and you think there's potentially a better way to do something, you try it. And, Sometimes those things work out well, and you're glad you did them, and plenty of other times you, you wish you hadn't have done them, but that's that's all part of the learning process. That's the going process, and you can get a lot better doing that. So I, I think it's a lot of it just culturally is just the willingness to, to try to, to do things. If we think there's a way we can do something better to try it and to be less consumed about the outcome, and as long as we're learning from those outcomes and not, and not repeating them when they, when they don't go our way. And, and that's something I think throughout our organization we take a lot of pride in that approach, and it's pretty well embedded at this point. Eric Neander is joining us. So on top of that, I'm going to follow up by something you said to The Athletic last year that I thought was really interesting. Quote, our goal is to win. Transactionally, we're probably admittedly on the ruthless side with some of the things we do. But when it comes to maximizing what we have and caring for our players, I'd put us up there with anybody. End of quote. See, it's got to be a fine line, right? Like you, you want to be so efficient and you want to maximize that but maybe you don't want to get caught up in seeing players as assets or lines on a spreadsheet but from what you're talking about that's not the way it is how fine is that line between making those tough decisions and understanding there is a human element involved it's it's fine i think you it, it it's it's a lot to the transactionally ruthless have used that a few times it is i think a, a necessary part of the way that we do business and i think because of that it, you know, if you're going to operate that way, it's a lot easier to create more distance with your players and to, you know, and, and, and to not have relationships with them and to not be as invested with them. It's easier to, to make transactions. That's the case. And uh, we try to do everything we can to, you know, we, that, that, that's part of our approach to make those, those decisions, those difficult decisions. But, you know, we, we do everything we can to make sure that doesn't interfere with, with caring for the players and, and doing everything we possibly can to help the individuals and the teams find as much success as possible. And you have to be invested. You have to care for them. And I do believe that much that, that we do, um, you know, is that, that care factor, that, that care wins. And it's recognized at the end of the day that we have a lot of difficult decisions to make. And I just think you handle them with respect. You handle them honestly and transparently and you own them for, for what they are, but that can never interfere with, with the way that we look out for our group and, I think that that's been established well enough that they recognize that and they appreciate it. And even when we do make those difficult decisions, they, they know it's we got to do what we've got to do in the best interest of the club and what our jobs are. But I, I do believe our players feel respected and cared for along the way. Yeah, I was going to say, you know what I like about that? I like care wins. Care wins. And the players know. And the players know and the manager knows. I would imagine, too, that even if that's what you do and what you need to do and everybody understands it, those tough decisions, I would imagine they never, ever get easier, do they? They're harder. They're harder. They'd be a lot easier if you didn't do that part. But um, no, they're they're difficult. And you know, there's it's typically you know any time we're we're trading a, an established major league player, you know, it's it's probably the mentality that comes with that or the expectation is there's some owning of yeah, you know, it's potentially a step backwards at present for two steps forward in the future. And you just hope over time that you know. The, the frequency of moves like that, that that work out in your favor high enough that, that you start to build up some momentum and, you know, grow that snowball, so to speak, over several years. And I think we've been fortunate enough to, to reach a point like that now, but they are, they're really difficult. And these are human beings, they have families, and that's that's never, never, ever lost on us. But 
also try to make sure that that doesn't stop you from from doing something that you think is necessary to to remain competitive and to to win games because that's you know that's that's my job description that's the job description of our of our staff and uh, we got to see that through as well. No doubt. So, Eric, one last thought. The, the best thing about this to me is there's not a disconnect. Like, as tough as that might be, Kevin Kiermaier said this, quote, whatever Eric and all the guys in our front office have done, I've learned to just say, hey, you guys are right time and time again. So even if you have to make that tough call, that doesn't mean that there's not a disconnect there. In fact, it sounds like the guys in the clubhouse have complete confidence in you and the rest of the front office. How does that sound and how does that feel hearing that from him? I'm I'm glad he's overlooked the the many times we haven't been right. That <laughs> uh, that's helpful <laughs> right. when it comes to that. But it's you know it's it's appreciated. I, I think that look, there's like I said, we we have a job to do. We don't shy away from that. I think you can you can own that. That you know we we all have our job descriptions in this. We all have our roles, and and you can have healthy relationships with with one another, even when those things can be at odds. And in, in some of these moments, I think that's recognized and. They know that, that we're trying to do the best that we can. You know, winning games, it always helps, you know, for, for whatever reasons. And our players have done a heck of a job, you know, uh, helping to, to validate some of the decisions we've made. And a lot of that's on them. But um, it, it, it certainly helps to have those types of relationships and that type of confidence with our club and, um, you know, appreciate them and the way that they go out, the way they play to, uh, like I said, I'm glad they feel that way about us, but they're the ones doing the work and, and making it happen. By the way, heck of an organization. The Rays have gone to the postseason three straight years. They've got a couple of divisional titles during that time, a World Series appearance, and they're three games out of first in the AL East. Extremely efficient, very competitive, and they're doing it the right way. Eric Neander is their president of baseball ops and GM. Eric, I appreciate the conversation I did last year. I do today. I'll look forward to doing it again soon, and it's great to have you back. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jim. If we get another 11-game streak here, wouldn't mind coming on later this year. Hey, guys, why don't we talk about something that you probably don't think about very often, but you should. Skin care. Skin care can be complicated, especially for men who have never had a skincare routine. That's where Tiege Hanley comes in. Tiege Hanley is a men's skincare company that helps guys start and maintain a healthy skincare routine by making the process uncomplicated. Every box comes with an instruction card. Every box comes with an instruction card that tells you when to use each product, how much to use, and in what order. It's that simple. In fact, you know what? Start with the level one system because that is the easiest way to get it going. And it comes with all of the basics that guys need to take care of their skin. The products included are a face wash, an exfoliating scrub, an AM moisturizer, and a PM moisturizer. A daily face wash to get rid of the dirt and grime on your skin. And two times per week, exfoliating scrub to get rid of the dead skin cells. Plus, the AM Moisturizer rules and the PM Moisturizer helps your skin stay hydrated and healthy throughout the entire night. I love it. Now I've got a plan. Now I've got a process. Now I've got a product. And you should too. And especially right now because Tiege Hanley is sponsoring this episode and they're offering an amazing deal. Just go to Tiege.com slash Rome and you'll get 30% off your first box plus a free gift. That's T-I-E-G-E dot com slash Rome. An amazing deal. Tiege dot com slash Rome. I was talking about Alan Shipnook's book on Phil Mickelson. And the book is called Phil, the rip-roaring and unauthorized biography of golf's most colorful superstar is due out in 12 days. And that sounds about right. So he had posted a piece on firepitcollective.com today and my reaction to that piece after seeing it and reading it was holy crap like I'd been jonesing to get my hands on that book ever since Alan dropped that piece about Phil and the quote scary mother bleepers he was the one who had that first he in fact referenced that in today's post quote if I've thought of Phil a lot over the last three months that's probably because the excerpt rocked my world too In his February 22nd statement, Mickelson wrote, There is the problem of off-the-record comments being shared out of context and without my consent. End of quote. Like, those are among the most serious charges you can make against a reporter. Out of context. We were talking about Saudi Arabia and the PGA Tour. Without my consent, 
Phil called me. <laughs> so that's Shipnook saying, without my consent, he called me and volunteered the information, which is pretty awesome and pretty amazing. But it's not even the most amazing part of what Shipnook posted today. So let's get down to what I was talking about last hour. Let's get down to business. The business of gambling. Everybody knows Hefty likes to gamble. That's not news to anybody. Anybody who has even paid any attention to any sport, much less golf, knows this. Hefty loves to gamble. Hefty. Except I'm not sure how many people knew how much he loved to gamble or how much he actually was gambling. Quote, Mickelson's love of gambling is fundamental to understanding his style of play as a golfer. It might also explain the Saudi seduction. Based on his comments to me, he clearly enjoyed the idea of sticking it to the PGA Tour. But the real motivation was plainly the funny money being offered by the Saudis. End of quote. All right, so I know what you're thinking. Why would a guy who's made crazy money in the past need even more money? Well, check this out. Quote, according to a source with direct access to the documents, Mickelson had gambling losses totaling more than $40 million in the four-year period 2010 to 14 that was scrutinized. End of quote. I said $40 million over four years. No, check that. More than $40 million. That's insane. Like, how are there enough hours in the day? How are there enough games in any given day? How are there enough rounds of golf to play in any given day? How is there enough of anything combined to run through that kind of cash? This dude's out here losing 10 mil a year gambling that we know about, right? That we know about. That's been scrutinized. 10 mil a year. Let's do some math. Sharpen up your pencil. 10 mil a year is more than 27 grand a day. He's out here losing an entry-level sedan every single day gambling. So if that's true, one of the best golfers ever is also one of the worst gamblers ever. If you're losing 10 mil a year gambling, that's not even gambling. That's not even wagering. That's just losing that's just setting your cache on fire. How terrible are you at gambling if you're losing eight figures a year? I mean, dude, if you need action, just go to the track, go with a couple of $2 box exactas, maybe box three horses if you're feeling especially exotic or spicy. If you want the fix... Figure out a way to get it without losing a luxury car or two per week or per day. How much do you have to love losing in order to be losing 10 mil a year? Again, 10 mil a year that we know about. I mean, the guy was flat out addicted to losing because he clearly sucks at it. And I know what you're thinking. Well, yeah, Rome, he was losing a lot of money. Because he was making a lot of money. Well, Shipnook got that breakdown too. Quote, In those prime earning years, his income was estimated to be just north of $40 million a year. That's an obscene amount of money, but once he paid his taxes, including the California tariffs that he has publicly railed against, he was left with what? Low 20s? End of quote. All right, again, nobody's going to cry for a dude who's only walking with 20 mil. But keep in mind, 20 mil is not 20 mil either. Not when you have a lifestyle. Not when you have his expenses. Not when you have expenses such as a plane, multiple houses, an agent, a caddy, a staff. Oh, and a T-Rex skull. Yep. Yep, 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 yep. Yep, 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 yep. Yep. According to Allen, somewhere in there was a, quote, actual T-Rex skull for a birthday present. End of quote.
Yep, 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 yep. Yep, yep, yep. I mean, this dude is one of the most insane guys ever. 10 mil per year in gambling losses, and he's buying up dinosaur skulls. My man makes Nick Cage seem frugal and fiscally responsible. Jim Rome investing in racehorses, restaurants, and record labels. Cannot believe what this guy's doing with his money. Losing 10 mil a year? Gambling and buying dinosaur bones. I mean, this dude. Come on, Hefty. So when you get past the expenses, I mean, the dude's barely covering his gambling losses, right? Or worse, he might have been losing money during that run. He might have been making 40 mil a year and somehow losing money on that deal. And that's when times were good. Because then he went years without a win. So obviously that income dropped big time. And I doubt that a guy who was fiending that hard for gambling would cut back dramatically on that front, right? Your income may have gone way down, but I bet his Jones for gambling didn't. And those are only the stories that Shipnook says you could print. He referenced another story, one that, quote, would have been international news, end of quote, but one that could not be printed because it was off the record and his source wouldn't allow it, which I believe. I totally believe that. That's the ultimate tease. I mean, I believe that. If Hefty was out here losing $10 million a year and buying up dinosaur bones, of course there was some international incident at some point. No wonder this dude wanted to work with those, quote, scary mother bleepers. He's addicted to money. He's addicted to losing money. And I'm not sure in what order. And who knows what else he's addicted to. And incredibly, so many of you are, in fact, so many of you are addicted to this dude's brand of bullcrap. I've said it for so many years. Let's get this guy's one of the more insincere disingenuous people not even athletes but people ever yet this dude has had so many of you just eating out of his hand buying whatever bullcrap he was slinging and don't even try to come in here and say yeah well it's his word against shipnooks believe me if it's anybody's word versus hefties i'm taking the field especially when it comes to a respected journal like the one in question I mean, do you know how bad you would have to be at gambling and how addicted you'd have to be to keep losing 10 mil a year and keep doing it? And no, again, do not tell me it's relative. 10 mil is 10 mil, even if you're making 200 mil and he wasn't. As always, we don't know any of these guys. Well, except Hefty. I think a few of us had a pretty good idea, but most of you did not. But finally now, maybe you're coming around to the truth about this dude. Are you craving some protein after a good workout? Do not make a shake or eat a bar. Grab a bag of beef jerky from Old Trapper. Old Trapper beef jerky is tasty and tender and made with real strips of steak and quality spices that are smoked over a wood fire. And it goes wherever you go, to the game, to the gym, to the beach. So look for Old Trapper in the Clearview bag. You can see the quality you're buying. Look for it in major retail stores near you. If you don't see it, ask for it by name because no other jerky compares. Old Trapper, what's your beef? Jahan Dotson is my guest. Jahan, really nice to have you on. How are you today? I'm good. How you doing? Good, dude. Good. So after the draft, you jumped on a private plane. You flew to the facility for the first day as a commander. I'm curious, what was that flight like, and then how did it feel to arrive for your first day at work? Yeah, uh, the flight was surreal. I I couldn't believe it. I got to I got to the Allentown Airport, and I, I had never seen a, a private jet in, in Allentown, Pennsylvania. So uh, that that was that was a pretty cool feeling, and getting on that with with my closest closest friends, closest family, close family members. It, it was pretty cool. And uh, just getting here, getting meet, uh, meet by Coach Ron Rivera at the door, it was, was honestly a surreal moment. I've been watching him on TV um, pretty much all my life. And to, to be able to shake his hand and introduce me to the team, it was, it was awesome. 
John Dotson joining us. I think that's such a great description by you. Start to finish. What about Ron Rivera? Like, I've got to say, I, I'm as objective as I can possibly possibly be in all these things, but I got to admit, I have so much respect for him and so much admiration for him. What are your early impressions of him after seeing him on TV all these years? And then how much are you looking forward to playing for him? Yeah. Um, just to start by, lastly, what you said, I am extremely excited to be playing for him. Honestly, uh, someone who, who's I've, who I've been watching uh, over the years on TV, um, and it, it just you can tell he cares, like a guy who cares about his guys uh, and, and just wants to win, and, and that's what I want to do. Uh, honestly, coming coming from Nazareth, Pennsylvania, being so close to my parents, uh, you, you, you when you get dropped off, you want to be able to have someone who you know is going to take care of you. And I, I know I have the faith in Coach Rivera to do that, and I know we're going to win a lot of games here. You know, I'm glad you mentioned your parents. I was really eager to talk to you about your parents, and I'm going to in just a moment, but I know how important they have been to you and the sacrifices they've made that you probably, I mean, you obviously would not be where you are without them. I'm going to ask you about that. When you look at the team, though, and you look at the receiver's room, you've got a receiver's room that already has Terry McLaurin. As one receiver looking at another, how eager are you to work with him and attack defenses together? Yeah, um, I'm, I'm extremely excited. Uh, it, not not always do you get the opportunity to have someone in your room that has the success like he has at this level. And honestly, I, I couldn't be more happy to have that uh, just because I'm a guy who likes to learn. So um, being able to learn from someone who, who's doing it at a very high level at this level is pretty cool. Talking to John Dotson, you know, when you're taken where you were taken, when you have the college career that you had and you put up the numbers you put up, there's going to be expectations. You understand this. You're used to it. But, I mean, some of this stuff is just, like, already off the charts. You've already got guys like Chris Collinsworth who played that position at a high level talking about how you're going to have 100 receptions in a season at some point. When you hear things like that, do you feel any kind of pressure whatsoever or do you embrace and like those expectations? Um, I honestly embrace it. I, I'm, I probably don't even look at it that much, but I, I pretty much embrace it just because uh, the hard work that I put in has got me to this point, and it's only going to take me even farther the more work I put in. So honestly, um, just just keeping my head down, being humble, and just putting the work in, it, it's going to take me a long way. It got me to this point, and I feel like it. That's the that's the thing that just drives me. Listen, in terms of what drives you, you could have entered the draft last year, but you went back to school. You said your goal at the time was to be legendary, to leave your mark. Where did this notion of not just being good or even great, but actually being legendary come from? Yeah, so uh, being at Penn State, Coach Franklin talks a lot about uh, us having not having a good program, not having a great program, but being elite. Um, and being being elite, I feel like you you got to be legendary uh, in, in a sense. Uh, you got to have legendary players on your team. You got to have guys who who can make those spectacular plays. Who can who can be the guys to go to. And I I've, I wanted to be that guy. Uh, I just wanted to be that guy for our team uh, the year I came back. And I knew I had the opportunity to do so. And working working in the off season, it, it was it was all in the attempt to, to be legendary. So you have to have those legendary moments. You have to have those legendary games. As an example, that game, of course, against Maryland, where you had 11 receptions, 242 yards, and three TDs. Like, when you think back on that game, what are the moments or feelings that you remember the most about that day and that game? Yeah, uh, I remember uh, Maryland trying to disrespect me as a receiver and playing man-to-man every time. But uh, it, it, it was fun. Um, honestly, I'm, I'm just a kid. Uh, playing a kid's game, and I'm honestly just having fun with it, you know. Uh, it, it's something I've been doing from a very young age, and I'm I'm enjoying it every time I step on step between the white lines. So, honestly, I'm, I just go out there and I have fun. That, that's, what, that's what really drives me, uh, keeps me going, is me just going out there. This is where I have fun. John, when you said that they were disrespecting you, like when they're lining one guy up against you and trying to guard you in man coverage, are you thinking, hey, good good this is an opportunity or are you thinking man that is an extreme show of disrespect like what was going through your mind uh a little bit of both honestly uh it's an opportunity i'm always looking for uh when, whenever i get man to man i want to be that guy when we get man to man coverage i want to be that guy that sean has the ability to say look i'm coming to you every time so uh having that that connection with sean was huge for us just because he knew i was i was going to be able to get open and then definitely it, it, it's a it's a disrespect kind of thing just as a wide receiver you don't you don't feel like anyone can guard you. Uh, you. You feel like you're always better than the DB. So 
uh, going against guys one-on-one was, was big for me. John Dotson is joining us. I mentioned that I'd get back to your parents. Like, when you broke the single-game receiving yardage record in that game, afterwards, the thing you were talking about was your parents and the sacrifices yeah. they made for you to get to that spot. You've always said that your biggest source of motivation was just that. What did you learn from your parents growing up, and then what was the extent of the sacrifices that they made for you to be in this position? Yeah. Um, it's literally, if I, could, if I could make a list for you, uh, it's probably taking the rest of my lifetime, honestly. Um, just like you said, sacrifice, uh, being there for me. That, that's my biggest support system. So, uh, <laughs> no, that's my biggest support system. So uh, it, it's crazy. Uh, honestly, the, the amount of time and effort they put in to make sure that I'm successful uh, in life, is it's ridiculous. Uh, so I, I couldn't thank them enough. And honestly, that that's my rock. I think it's an amazing thing. Really quickly, a few years back, your mom, Robin, was diagnosed with multiple myeloma, and she had to be in the hospital during your game against Buffalo in 2019. She told everybody at the hospital that her son played with Penn State and for Penn State and that it was going to get loud during the game. What have you learned from watching her face that challenge and battle it the way she has? Yeah, uh, it, it was really tough because uh, I, I had never experienced um, anything traumatic in my family like death or or someone going through a hard time. So having that my mom was, was going through a hard time like that, uh, it, it was really tough for me. So um, honestly, she I'm just like her. She, she's a fighter. She, she doesn't give up. Uh, so just being by her side and having my family there for her, uh, that, was, that was big for her. So she was in remission. Then it came back. Your father, Al, says that the impact you have on your mom is really special. Quote, he makes her just shine. He makes her just come to life. He makes her see there's something to live for that's big. It's really big. End of quote. I mean, what's it mean to hear that? And how would you describe the relationship that the two of you have? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's been my girl forever. Um, I've, I've always been a mama's boy ever ever since a very young kid. So uh, me and that... I can be that for my mom. Uh, it's just, it makes my life, honestly. Uh, she She's the person that I, I go to all the time. If I need some, uh, she, she's always going to be there for me. So um, just knowing that and knowing that she, she's she's there, is, is that, that's all I need. Truly, man, that's beautiful. That is, that is such an amazing thing for a son to say about his mother. I love that. Jahan Dotson joining us. So when you've been striving and working to get to the NFL for this long, and now you're here, and there's a lot of work to be done, but now you're here. How does it feel? I mean, does it feel like you have arrived or will not feel that way until you hit the field in week one? What does it feel like? Um, it, it, It's everything I've been working for all my life. Uh, just just another milestone in, in my journey. Uh, I, I'm, I'm never satisfied. Literally, I, I need to take that with a grain of salt, but I'm, I'm, I say that all the time. I'm never satisfied. I'm, I'm the same all the time, so is some of my friends are like, bro, are you even excited? I'm like, yeah, bro. But like, like you said, there's so much more to be done. Uh, I'm not satisfied with just, just getting here. I, I want to be here for a while and I want to do some tremendous things at this level. So, uh, ne- never satisfied. I get that. He's a wide receiver for the commanders. As I mentioned, had a great, great college career at Penn state, set small time records. Washington was seven and 10 last season. They've got their guy, the 16th pick overall, Jahan Dotson. Jahan, really appreciate you. Great to have you on the show. Hope we can do it again soon. Great conversation. Thanks for doing that. Yes, sir. Thank you. The future will be great, but today is just as incredible. Meet Nissan's most advanced lineup. If you can't get enough adrenaline, there's the all-new 400 HP Nissan Z. Or, for your off-road adventures, check out the all-terrain Nissan Frontier. If you're more of a spontaneous road trip type of person, then hop in the Nissan Pathfinder. And, for something more electric, there's the stylish Nissan Aria. So, let's enjoy the ride. 2023 Aria and Z, not yet available for purchase. Expected availability this spring for 2023 Z and this fall for 2023 Aria. He is Brian Scalbrini. Brian, what's going on? How you doing, Scal? You know, Jim, a lot of people fly by night and want to get me on air. But you know what? You were getting me on air for 20 years. So there will never be a time when I deny to go on the Jim Rome show. So thanks for having me. Well, man, I love that so much. I appreciate that. I'm not even being funny. I appreciate that very, very much, Brian. The longer I do this, the more relationships and loyalty mean to me, and I appreciate that because you are a very big deal. You were then, you are now. In fact, let's talk about then and now. 
That's a great jumping off point because you and Chris Paul were in the league at the same time for quite a while, in fact. So what do you think when you watch him show up the way he has in the playoffs so far, and especially when you consider he's going to turn 37 tomorrow? I think he's better now than he was back in the day. I think he's, you know, you know all the antics that he used to do then? I, I really feel like that affected his play. I thought he got too excited about the game, kind of overwhelmed with, you know, trying to work the referees, you know, work the other team, be nasty and all that stuff. I think he's very good at that now, and I think it's a, it's a, a big separation. And that's just talking about the, the side gig of working the game and working a possession. Him as a player right now, I think he's more efficient, gets to his spots, creates more space plays with more poise. He never seems like he's flustered anymore, and I can't say the same thing. I, I was watching the other day on, what was it, like, in, in maybe an NBA TV game. They were playing the uh, Oklahoma City Thunder, and he was all over the place. Like, just almost a little too emotional. Like, he settled all that down, and it's probably the last two years, I would have to say, I've really appreciated what I've seen. I wasn't always a huge fan of Chris Paul, but really appreciate the way that he plays, and and uh, the style and the, you know, the basketball IQ that's really starting to separate now than we saw, let's say, 10 years ago. Brian Scalbrini joining us. I agree with you. I think his acumen is just off the charts. And it seems like, well, frankly, he's not running around punching guys in the junk and he's playing within himself. And, yeah, I mean, the guy's incredible. He's going to turn 37. Brian, let me ask you about the Celtics. Now, they've got some more time off before Game 3 on Saturday. They didn't show up so well in Game 1. So what did you make of the way they bounced back in Game 2? Yeah, pace. Everything was pace and energy. I just thought they played really slow. you got to look at the NBA right now. There's two teams that really stand out from that. When you watch like the Philadelphia 76ers play with James Harden and Dallas Mavericks with Luke Doncic, both those guys play kind of slow. And that is not the way you win anymore. The, the physicality of the NBA has gone up. The Celtics, when they're playing fast and a little bit, a little bit wild and free, that's when they're at their best. I thought in game one, it was drive to the basket, one pass, wide open shot, take it. And I thought in game two, it was attack, kick, attack, kick, attack, kick, extra pass, wide open threes. So both of them ended up in wide open threes. But the ball, the energy, the, the, the environment, the crowd, everything was so much different in two. But also remember, Milwaukee did not play their best game. We have yet to see two heavyweights slug it out where both teams are playing their best. That's why it's really hard to predict a winner of this series. Normally, you get two people, they go at it, you see like the highs and lows of each team throughout a game. We've just had one terrible game by the Celtics and one terrible game by the Bucks. So I'm kind of looking forward to seeing what, how, what unfolds when we go up to Milwaukee 3-4. and four. Brian Scalbrini joining us. Brian, you've also made the point that you feel like the Celtics have not yet had a signature road win. Does it feel like this group does have one in them, or do you need to see it to believe it? No, I think they do. They've, they've had some, a lot of success this year on the road since that, you know, that halfway point in the season. Um, and I think they're poised to do that. But, you know, like going out there and having the ability to do it and then doing it, like in the regular season, it is what it is. You know, like there's ups and downs. There's players out. There's all kinds of things. Like when there is something on the line right now, that's what I want to see how this team responds. Like I believe in these guys. I believe that they can do it. But I, I think I would – I'd be doing my job as an analyst to not bring up the fact that as much as I think they've played, uh, I think Jalen Brown has played like 92 playoff games. And throughout those 92, they've had some moments, great moments, uh, by the way, but not that signature. It's a, you know, you really need this win. It's a game six, you know, where you can maybe put a team away or you're facing elimination and you come away with a win. So, just, I just bringing that up because it's like I, I really do want to see it. But, you know, these two players, it's been fun watching them grow from, you know, young players where you're like, man, is this guy ever going to be able to do it? To like, yeah, I really like the way that these guys play to where they're at right now. Like Tatum is knocking on the door to an MVP caliber season next year. And, and Brown is knocking on the door to being a perennial all-star. So that's a good place to be for a team. But you make your beef and bones in the playoffs where – you're all of a sudden now like going on the road in the crowd, not not affecting you and getting, and getting that signature win. 
Brian Scalabrini joining us. I agree with you there. Let me ask you this. For instance, when you talk about pace and you talk about speed and you talk about physicality, there's been, Scout, an ejection in each of the first two games in the Golden State-Memphis series. I mean, you've played playoff basketball. You understand playoff basketball. So where do you draw the line between hard-nosed physicality in the postseason and just straight dirty play? I mean, just, you know, like that, I think both those plays were, I think the Dylan Brooks play was way dirty. Like, like the fact that a guy is going up and you hit him across the head and, and, you know, he can, he can end up, you know, like ruining his career. I thought, I thought that was a dirty play. You could go for the ball without doing the excessive swing. You know, the Draymond Green one, I do think it's a little bit of reputation. You know, he swiped down, hit the guy in the head, in the face, and then he grabbed the jersey. So, when you just – if you go one plus one equals two, and that's like kind of how I think they looked at that flagrant. But, you know, I, I mean, um, I, I think the physical play to me in the playoffs is defending at a high level without fouling. Like, anybody can do that. I, I, can, I can go right now and take, you know, 100 players in the NFL and say go out there and make dirty plays. But what makes a physical team is being physical without fouling. Like, being physical and fouling and putting guys on the line 50 times does not make you good. Like, I thought there was a big separation in that Nets-Celtic series in, in round one. A guy like Grant Williams. Man, he was physical on Kevin Durant, physical on Kyrie Irving, but he wasn't fouling. So that's how I look at play, playoff basketball because, like I said, like, I mean, anybody can do it. Anybody could hack people. That doesn't help you win games. Hey, Brian, one quick thought about the Nets since you mentioned them. Like, before the season, of course, there was that thought that they were the – team to beat they were the team to beat overall as you looked at the nets over the course of the season and even during that playoff sweep i mean obviously they've got two really special players but are they even a good team you know what when so everyone said they were good right and i just had to be honest from what i'm saying what i'm seeing and i I say the same thing about the lakers and i was like a little bit shocked does that mean like these analysts are being spoon-fed information because i know they're good at what they do but like jim you ask i'll ask you did you ever at any moment look at the Nets roster? Of course not the Lakers roster. Like, you knew that right from the start. And then as it carried on, you're like, I told you guys this wasn't going to work. But when you look at the Nets roster and you watch them play, and you realize, like, Blake Griffin was good last year, but he's probably not good this year. LaMarcus Aldridge, he's lost a step. And by the way, let's not ignore the fact that the NBA, with the, it was the pandemic season. There was nobody in the stands. And it was the, it was the physicality was a joke. An absolute joke out there. So now all of a sudden it's physical, and Kevin Durant's having a hard time separating, and Kyrie Irving is not playing, and James Harden is a shell of himself. I just said, listen, I could be wrong, and maybe these guys will hit their stride, and teams in the past have done that before. But I'm telling you guys right now, I do not see a championship roster here. I don't even see a player, a team making a deep playoff run. And I said that early, and then it sort of happened. The Nets were up there, and they got some injuries. But just look at the team and look at the roster. That's not how you win in 2022. And I said the same thing about the Lakers. They're just, you know they have all these great players. They played slow. Every, every possession, they all jogged up the floor. Then you're watching like a team like Memphis, and it's drive, kick, drive, kick, drive, kick, drive, kick, open three. You're like, man, geez, that's like really hard to guard. I think that's a, that team's a lot better than that team. So, yeah, I never bought into those two, even though everyone told me they were going to flip a switch. They just never did. Well, Scal, you were right. You were right when you said it about both those teams, and you were the, one of the only ones who was saying it early on. And in terms of, well, why aren't more people saying it? That's a whole different conversation, whether it's about access or people don't want to burn their sources or whatever it is. This is why you're so good at what you do, because you were saying exactly what you see. Now, what about Memphis? Before I let you go, Brian Scalabrini joining us. The series is tied at one game apiece right now. I mean, there are series that are 1-1, and then there are series that are 1-1. I guess what I'm getting at it, is this series already over even at 1-1? Yeah, I, I mean, I that the only caveat would be that the only guy that could stop John Morant just broke his elbow. There's no one else on that team that can. But the one thing Warriors will always figure out, they've played bigger, better players before. But, yeah, like, it's, it's – you know what? Memphis is just not ready, and that's okay. They're a really good team. They're just not ready for that yet. And, by the way, the, the Warriors – and this is where I stand on this, I always look at ceiling and floor. The Warriors' ceiling is higher than any other – it's much higher than the Phoenix Suns. It's just that the Phoenix Suns' floor is higher than the Warriors' floor. The Warriors have some nice – they're good nights. They're unbelievable. But some nights they're like, eh, like a little disinterested, missing a lot of shots, not taking great shots. So I've picked the Warriors all year long. I could be wrong. I think the Warriors 
you know, again, I got to figure it out. I think Draymond Green with, with the pace and space offense with Curry and the ascension of Jordan Poole, I think that all these guys are all better than the Phoenix Suns. So I'm looking right past it. I think this could be a five-game series. The only reason why it would be a six-game series is because the better team doesn't have home court advantage. So, yeah, I'm, I'm fully expecting Warriors to win, too, and try to close out Memphis in Memphis. All right, so, Scott, one last thought. Let me go off the board before I let you go. You were recently planning a trip to go to Costco with your wife. I'm curious, and knowing you, knowing you, I bet you had an over-under on how much was going to be spent. What was the over-under, and how did the trip go, if you don't mind? You know how uh, the world right now, everyone loves gambling, right? And I was like, you guys want to know a real over-under? 525 at Costco, over or under? That is so Come to find out, I didn't buy New York uh, strip steaks, any of that stuff. So we actually went under on the trip. It was like 435. So it was a good night for me, even though I took the over. Scott, that is so funny and so true, right? (laughs) The way the world is right now with gambling being legalized in more and more states and more and more people doing it, that everybody needs a number. And by the way, you can bet on anything at all. We may as well bet on your trip to Costco. That is the best, right? Like, Uh, you you had to do it, right? And you came in at the under. Well under. that's, That's the world we live in now. Half of my... Analyst work is based off of, hey, which is what I see, but half of it is based on who's going to win by eight and a half points or not. I mean, that's just, that's where we're going in this business. And, you know, the DraftKings of the world are paying big money to pay for commercials. So, you know how they drive. That's what drives our media market. Dude, isn't it so weird? Like, for the longest time, and, and I'm that guy, for the longest time I was always one of those guys who said, I don't need to get down to watch a game and love a game. And I'm not going to lie to you. Now that I started doing it and I have been doing it, I don't know that I want to stop doing it. I want to be responsible. <laughs> I want to be very clear about that. I want to be responsible. I just want to know, like, for instance, and Scout, you know this, right? One way to do it is to bet in-game, and I've had more success doing that than getting down before the game. I want to know if I could have gotten down once you got inside that store and made some in-store bets on the Scalabrini family. (laughs) All you had to do was watch me walk by the State Department. Once I like kind of took a quick look, I looked at my wife and she's like, you got him in the deep freezer below. At that point, you got to jump on the under. Yeah, you got to go quick because the under was dropping as I walked by those uh, prime New York strips. Uh, Okay, Scal. I like that you're having, you know, live betting. That's where I stand a lot too, unless I feel like a team's going to jump off and, and, and get going early, but you're exactly right, man, because you, you have watched enough games where you have a feel and a pulse of a game, and uh, live betting is where it's at. That is exactly where it's at. One last thought, and you actually said it before I could ask you. I was going to say, are you a filet guy? Are you a New York guy? Are you a prime guy? What, where do you go for, what do you do for me? So prime, and I'm a big uh, ribeye guy because I, I feel like you can do a lot. You know, like it's hard to really mess up a ribeye. You know, like a filet, you cook it a minute too long, it's, it's over. Strip, not as bad, but ribeye, like if you, you got to be a real moron to mess up a cowboy ribeye on the barbecue. <laughs> you, at that point, you might as well just like quit life if you can mess up a cowboy ribeye on the, on the barbecue. Dude, you are such a legend. All right, so really quickly, are you a bone in or bone out, and where do you come out on dry aged? Uh, well, see, I can't afford that at this point, so I start gambling a little bit better in those live bets. But <laughs> bone in and dry age all the way. But right now, I'm buying Costco. So eventually, once I get this live betting down, and you know the other thing I'm I'm worried I'm, I want to learn about parlays. I want to learn about player props and parlays. Once I get that, man, you know for sure. I'm going to the meat market for that dry age. I'm with you, dude. I'm with you. I'm not exotic with it yet, but as soon as we get better, then we can get down and we can up it all. <laughs> He's an NBA champion. He's an 11-year NBA vet, first-team All-Pac-10, a Celtics analyst at NBC Sports Boston, an Odyssey NBA insider, and an extremely busy person this time of year. Scal, I so appreciate it, man. That was an awesome, awesome hit. Appreciate you, man. You're the best. You got it, Rome, anytime. All right, so, Alvy, do me a favor. Jump on over. Trade places with chalk because I want to find out the same time everybody else finds out exactly what was going on during that interview. Now, uh, hey, dude, what's up? Hey, hang on. Oh, I got I got all the time in the world, bro. Whenever you're wait, wait, wait. Why is Rit behind the board and why is chalk in Rit's seat? Moving parts, just moving parts. Just moving parts, yo, just moving parts. Hey, so, Jim. Uh, hello, Alvin. How are you? 
All right. You didn't impregnate Mill last night, did you? No, I did not. Just kidding. All right. Just kidding. Uh-huh. So, listen, I mean, Rit, Rit, don't push any buttons, Rit. See, Chuck, that's why you didn't have to move. If the argument, Alvin, is, well, Rit's done it before, he doesn't need to do anything when you're there. These are all, I, these are all good points, yes. What, what, why is Rit over back. there? Rit, what are you doing over there? Rit, don't you start firing drops during this conversation. This is not sanctioned by me. So, Alvin... Really unusual. And by the way, it's, it's really hot in here. Like the, the thermostat's brutal. So I'm going to ask you a question, and you can take as long as you want to answer it. I'm going <laughs> to get up and walk over there, and I'm going to drop the thermostat. All right. Can you handle that? Okay. So you want I didn't me to ask talk you anything yet. I'm asking okay. you if I ask you a question, and it takes me four seconds to walk over and drop the thermostat because all of a sudden I feel like it's a sauna in here. Can you just cover? Yes. I can. I could. Do yeah, but that, then I sure. missed something you said. All right, so anyway, during that conversation, I noticed that you were standing on your chair and then on your desk. What was going on? So usually during the interview, obviously we're all paying attention. We're, and Eric Neander was awesome. And, you know, that would be rude if we weren't all paying attention. But there was oh something God, that dude, was... You sound like you're going to start crying. It, Alvin, they love you. You're fine. It was fine. very traumatic. It was traumatic. A lot of things going on, as always. A lot of things going on. What in the world has ever happened that's been traumatic other than me not responding when I was on the air and you trying to get my attention? I mean, the show is hard enough as it is, but then all these other little things going on, it's like it it stacks. Anyway, my point is— You're talking out your ass, dude. You've done this like 20 years, and there's nobody better than you. What are you talking about? It just— Okay, anyway, what happened? Why were you standing on your high chair? Why were you on your chair and then on your desk? Well, I don't want to take up too much time, so I have like Oh, no, you got all the time in the world, yo. No, 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 I don't have that much time. No, you have plenty of time. (laughs) I just just had three key points I wanted to uh, point out before I go back to my chair. Wait a minute, are you you negotiating this conversation with me right now? You have three key... Did you just tell me you have three key points you're going to make and then you're going to get out and I should stop asking you things? Yeah, pretty much. Radio time is very precious. I know if the suits like jump in, they're going to be like, what the heck is Alvin doing on there? No, no, they're not. They Frankly, they say to me, how come you don't put him on more often? No, there isn't anybody anywhere who's even thinking right now, suit or otherwise, why is Alvin taking up so much time? They are reveling in how uncomfortable you are and how funny you are. People love this. Everybody wants you on the show. Alvin, there's only one person in the world that doesn't want more of you on this show, and that's you. Uh, Am I understood? I'll take your word for it. Okay, so, okay, make make your three points, Alvin. Okay, so point one, we've kind of, uh, it's kind of understood that we live in a place that unfortunately has roaches, and it is what it is. It's fine. What is it, Alvin? Well, it's just, if it there's- It sucks is what it is. It sucks. They're cockroaches. Nobody likes them. Fair enough. So- They're bigger than Cody the Ragdoll Cat. So, as long as it- Nothing happens during the show. Is this still show. point one, or have you moved on to point two? Uh, I don't know. I already lost track. Right. As long as they don't bug us during the show, like, Bugs. we will we, thing, we'll let them do whatever they want <laughs> off-site. Like, what, move what, around what, the bathroom. I don't what, know. What does that mean? As long as we room. don't see them during the show, we're cool with that? Right, as long as they don't distract me. But unfortunately, we have a monitor, like, to my right, and we're watching it, obviously. And there was this huge roach right next to on the wall. Next to the TV. How would you Very define huge? I mean, like the size of Garrett's face, like right there. And the worst part of it was it was moving. Like if it was just going to sit there, I would have been totally fine. Like we could have, we could have ignored why, it. Why don't you say sit, boy, sit, boy, sit down, so, roll over. It's a roach, dude. What do you mean? They, they're roaches. They move. They scatter. They... Right. So that's the point. So the problem is it was... It was crawling towards me. So that was when I what, had an dude, issue what, with what, it. What, would it have been fine if it just sat there looking at you? Well, the problem is if I lost co- eye contact with it, it could have went anywhere. It could have went in my bag. I could have taken it home, infested my whole place. It could have done a lot of things. Okay. So so, so you had to take care of it. I had to take care of business, yes. Yeah, so yeah, I grabbed another— who, Who's Garrett? Did you reference somebody named Garrett? Who's Garrett? Uh, Garrett Ritt. Oh, Ritt. Yeah, there he is. Is that his first name? Garrett. So, right. so, you know how handy we are here with manila folders. Like, I have a bunch of them. We get them for these You reasons. weaponize them, dude. Yes, the, you weaponize we, them. They organize papers, and we kill roaches with them. So, I grabbed another one and got on. It, it was kind of an awkward spot, like, behind the... Okay, there you go. Yeah, there's... Is that... 
Okay, so if you if you're watching the TV, you can see me like looking at it. It's right behind the camera, so it almost looks right, like th okay. There's that's you moving me. in for the kill. If they're watching on CBS Sports <laughs> Network, there is you weaponizing a Manila envelope while I'm conducting an interview, moving it. Okay, no, actually, you explain what you were doing. So it was behind the camera, so I had to reach over with the Manila folder and then squish it. I couldn't slap it because there wasn't a lot of room, so I squished it, and then yeah, sat back down. Okay, now, honestly, do I just Credit saw... to you. Credit to you for... I mean, I guess you kind of saw everything going down, and you were... I'm uh, a pro, dude. Yeah, Eric Neander had no clue. No, he, he does now. He... Yeah, he... I, I'm a pro, and you are a pro as well, and that you handled that kill. And without distracting me too much, I will be honest about one thing, Alvin. It's not... I just saw the splatter on the manila envelope. It really was not as big as Ritz's face. I mean, I can see it from here, so it's not small, but it's not that big. I mean, I've seen much bigger roaches around here than that. That's only part of it. A lot of, like, the, the, oh. the remnants are on the board. They're all oh. over the place. Yeah, there was, oh, it was like, a So splatter. that was, like, just was, the torso yeah, or something. No, it, the I roach torso. There right. are remnants on the board. All right, yes. so what's going through your mind as you, get, as you make that big kill? And, and would you put its head up on the wall? <laughs> no, it's in the trash. I, fair warning to all the roaches that come into the studio. Do whatever you want, like, after show hours, but, like, during the show, like, we got problems. Or, or they're going to get what's coming to them. It sounds to me like that roach disrespected you and not on your bleeping watch. Right, they're not, not during the it. show. Not during the show. Not during the show, right? But they, the roaches can do whatever the hell they want at 1201. I mean, or 859. I mean, it's. They, they outnumber us, so it, it is what it is. Yeah, but, dude, we're much bigger than them, and we have brains. I don't know, dude. Maybe maybe we spray this place down or something? Uh, we, we have an exterminator? We have. All right. All right, I got you. I think that's it. Are you done? Yeah. Uh, are you going to eject? All right, just say, I'm out. Thanks, Jeb. What, no, no, thank you, Alvin. Thank you very much. Thank you for being the warrior roach killer that you are. Good night.